like, only ones. It's my really penis big. is maybe the size of a beer can, but not quite. But no, uh, you're gonna come buy that means, tickets. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. of the Opfat Cast. I'm Steve Cuffin. With me as always, Sean Glennis. Hey. Stephen Coleman. Yep, I'm here. And Adam Myros. Ugh. What was that? Just a lot of existential uh, angst coming from me this this week. <laughs> you you sound horrible, Myros. What, what's what's going on, man? Uh, Post traumatic pooty tang disorder. Yeah, so, something like that. Just. Just kind of a rough week in general, uh, but no, I, I just woke up, so I'm a little. <laughs> you you do sound a bit groggy. A little groggy. It, Sean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned post traumatic pooty tang disorder because uh, I don't know about you, but I, I've been suffering from uh, post blardum depression. You know, I, I haven't had enough bad cinema in my life after seeing you know that blart double feature that I pulled a few weeks ago. I just, it's just, it really, it left, it left an empty feeling in my soul. I just, I, you know, it, I haven't been the same since. But, and people are probably wondering, why are you talking about the movie Pootie Tang? No one's talked about the movie Pootie Tang in probably 15 years. And the answer isn't 15 years, it's actually 14 years. And the reason we're bringing up Pootie Tang is because recently, uh, a news story was circulating around that Louis C.K. was going to be directing, producing, and writing a movie for the first time in 14 years, which made me say, hmm, what's the last thing that Louis C.K. did? And uh, it turns out it's Pootie Tang, which I never would have guessed. So today, yeah, we're going to be talking about Pootie Tang, and if if it's really one of the worst movies of all time, or as uh, Scott Tobias, I think, from the AV Club said, it should be considered like a cult movie because it needs to be reevaluated. <sighs> <laughs> Well, j- just a little bit of background information. So Pootie Tang is, I guess, a uh, sort of black exploitation sort of movie in a way, kind of. It's it's sort of making fun of black exploitation movies. But this is before like Black Dynamite became popular or anything like that. Um, it's around the same time that Eddie Griffin, I think, made a similar movie, right? Undercover Brother. Undercover Brother, yeah, that that would be the one. So you know, a little little seventies nostalgia here. And Pootie Tang as a character was based on a sketch from the Chris Rock show, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, because yeah. Louis C.K. was yeah. a writer at the time, and I think that was his creation. Okay, okay, so yeah, Pootie Tang, which is again sort of weird because when you think of the sort of comedy that Louis C.K. does, whether it's his stand-up or just the show Louis. Uh, Pootie Tang doesn't seem to fit particularly well into that universe. No, I think it's important to to think of it as um, a spinoff from a skit um, because uh, I think we're pretty familiar with with uh, SNL movies that have turned off of skits and um, has a similar similar like sort of hodgepodge feel to it. Um, yeah, like very like yeah, yeah, and very one note. Well, yeah, except. This makes 
like movies like Superstar or Coneheads look like they have the narrative structure of Rear Window. <laughs> well, and it it's interesting that you bring up the narrative structure because the one thing that I struggled with in Pootie Tang is the one thing. I struggled with a lot of things. <laughs> the one thing I struggled with the most is I couldn't figure out like what the point of view in this movie is. Like who's who's telling me this story? So in the movie, we have this character, Pootie Tang, who's famous because, I, I don't know, he's super cool or whatever, and it's just sort of following his fall from, from grace and then back into the, the, the public eye as a, I don't know, an important role model for children, I suppose. But the movie itself, it's about this character, Pootie Tang. It's told from the narration of Pootie Tang's best friend. And then Wanda Sykes, who plays the character Biggie Smalls or Smally Biggs or what's her name? Biggie Smalley. Biggie know. Shorty. Biggie Shorty. Okay. Biggie Shorty. So yeah. Wanda, Wanda Sykes plays this character Biggie Shorty and her character like breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience on numerous occasions. So I don't know who's, whose point of view is the movie Pootie Tang from? Uh, duh, J.B. Smoove. <laughs> is, is that I mean, just because he does the narration? I guess that's usually a pretty good hint as to who's telling the story, but uh, I don't know. It's I, I have I can't I don't have words. <laughs> I think um, uh, I read some reviews about it and uh, the of uh, from 2001 and the Variety View said uh, Louis C.K. is credited with having directed the pick, although that would appear to be overstating the case. <laughs> Well, I know Louis C.K. has gone on record by saying that he, once he finished filming the movie, that Paramount sort of like just took over and basically edited it to hell and took away all of his point, main points, like just made it a movie that he didn't intend it to be. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of studio involvement here. He had yeah, no, no cut. <laughs> it's yeah. cer- certainly not surprising looking at it. I mean, it's it's really a bizarre anti-comedy film that's like edited in this, you know, MTV MTV film style where it's just like glossy and bizarre and uh, man, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very much of its time. Like when I think about yeah. 2001 and like stylistically, like what was popular on like MTV or just like what was like sort of that like youth movement style. It's basically an hour and a half music video or an MTV show. Uh, an hour and a half? I, I think it ran about 65 minutes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was incredibly short. I could not believe how short it was. Um, because it felt so long? It, well, that, that, that was part of it. That was part of it. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely, and this probably contributes to the, the issues with the with the point of view in the movie, but it really feels cobbled together. There's so many things that are just just jaw-droppingly bizarre. The fact that this was released in theaters is it's mind-blowing at times. And there's a lot of strange stylistic choices, too. Uh, most of the movie is, is kind of edited together, so yeah, it has that like slick MTV look. But then there's there's a handful of scenes where Louis C.K. shoots them all with like a handheld camera? And it's kind of like grainy, and and it, it has this like gritty appearance to it. It's very very strange. Um, but in in the movie's defense, here's here's what I'll say in Pootie Tang's defense, because there's so many 
different movies sort of like fighting for screen time within Pootie Tang, the moments where I actually laughed at it, I, I cracked up like twice because there's parts where it's so removed from reality that you can't help but laugh at the absurdity of it. Uh, I, I think one review said that Pootie Tang should be reconsidered because when it is funny, it's it's funny in like this absurd, stupid way. It's like watching a cat fall off of a table or something like that. Uh, I mean, and when, had... when Pootie Tang has those moments, it, it really shines. It's just the rest of the movie is such a fucking mess that it's it's hard to kind of latch onto those. I, the the Times gave it a favorable review in 2001, and it said something about uh, how admirable it, um, its no-brow appear, uh, appeal was or something like that, mm-hmm. which is certainly true, but um, I don't know. I mean, I like the I like the silent song bit. I think that's pretty good. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the silent song bit was good. That was actually one of the, the three times where I laughed. I laughed at the silent song. Uh, I laughed... There's this scene where, if, if you haven't seen Pootie Tang, uh, Pootie Tang goes to find himself on a farm because that's what you do in movies. It also happens in Age of Ultron and also Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for that matter. Uh, but he goes to this farm to find himself, and there's this like local girl who the sheriff is trying to hook Pootie Tang up with or something, and she brings him a pie. And he just gets really close to her, and then he takes the pie, and he just proceeds to like smear the pie all over his body, and then she... like tackles him through a window because she wants to have sex with him so badly. I laughed at that. Uh, there's another scene where, for I don't know what reason, uh, Pootie Tang grows a single stalk of corn on his farm, and when the corn dies, uh, his father appears as the corn, and it's just Chris Rock who plays like five different characters in this, dressed up as an ear of corn, and then his mother in the movie shows up dressed up like a cow, but it's clearly like just like a $5 costume from a Halloween store. So I laughed at that too, just because the absurdity, it's so just out of place in a movie that's already totally zany. So that that, that worked, but for the most part, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I think most of my laughs in the movie just came from like, hey, look, it's that guy. Like, hey, look, Todd Berry. Uh <laughs> Hey, it's half the cast from The Wire. <laughs> yeah. Oh, David Cross. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's Leon. Uh, yeah. D- oh, David Cross in blackface, no less. Yeah. Yeah. It I was. Think, um, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I guess, yeah. Go ahead, because I want to spin this a bit into an anti-comedy discussion. So. I, I was just gonna say, uh, there is a, um, I want to read a, a quick excerpt from the desert news that uh, out of Salt Lake City that might sum up how uh, you felt, Myros. Um, forget popcorn or junior mints. Aspirin is what you need to sit through Pootie Tang, because if you didn't have, <laughs> hey, you didn't have a headache already, uh, you surely will when you, have, when you stumble out. Calling the movie incoherent doesn't even begin to describe it. It's more like an audio-visual assault. If the United States ever goes to war again, we can use Pootie Tang as a torture device against our enemies. Uh, that that is a very apt review because it not only is it incoherent, it's so shrill. Like I mean, Chris Rock and J.B. Smoove can both be very funny men, but good mm-hmm. lord, in this movie they're they're just screaming the entire movie. Now it's it's a bit much, but yeah, I, I guess I wanted to. It brings to mind anti-comedy for me. I guess the closest thing I could come up with as a comparison for this film was. Uh, Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie, which I think yep. is a bit more successful, but still not very successful at all. <laughs> and 
I guess it kind of like I, I kind of love anti comedy. I'm a big Tim and Eric supporter. I I like a lot of anti comedy stuff, and it's just so a format that does not apply to a feature length film. It seems like you've got a lot of notorious loathed examples, like you know Tom Green's Freddy Got Fingered, obviously this, and again I I think uh, uh billion dollar movie fits right into that category too. It's kind of a bizarre failure. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And if I had to, you know, do the, the, the lazy thing where you just take movie A and movie B makes movie C, uh, Pootie Tang seems like a combination of Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie with, uh, Vince Offer's, uh, underground comedy movie mixed in. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it just, it, I don't know. It, 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 it defies everything that I expected out of it. We'll say that. Yeah, it reminds me also of uh, the of when um, Mr. Show when Bob and David did that movie Run Ronnie Run, which which is mm. you know uh, much much more palatable, but um, it just has like mechanical like failures, like just bad editing and and weird like exposition and stuff like that, just from people who aren't used to writing movies. Yeah, that. Oh, go ahead, Stu. No, I just uh, I agree. <laughs> but, <laughs> I did want to say I I don't know well maybe you should go first Steve and I'll make my point after that. No I, I was just I was just gonna say that I I agree 100 percent that it, it the places where Pootie Tang fails the most is is where it fails to grasp like how movies are structured or you know what parts of a movie you can kind of tinker with if you if you don't want to make a conventional narrative film. Uh, yeah. And yeah, Pootie Tang just sort of it just sort of falls apart. It's just in tatters. But I think it still reeked of potential, and that's why I've always been sort of a I would never I would never consider myself a fan of the movie necessarily, <laughs> but like I've always liked it to some extent. Um, and I think just like you know, a few friends of mine, we often like do the Pootie Tang quotes, uh, you know, Sepa Town and Day. <laughs> I think that shit's hilarious, um, and I think that it really. Screams the potential of at least like what Louis C.K. could do as a filmmaker or just as a surrealist comedian, um, which mm-hmm. I don't think people discuss that often. That he his like background in comedy writing, not not his standup, but like his writing is very absurdist. Um, yeah, and uh, obviously like Pootie Tang too is very much a vehicle for Chris Rock at the time, even though he's not the star of the film, he really is just the producer. And like Steve said, he plays like five different characters in the film, but really it was just like Paramount, I think had this opportunity to make a film very cheaply and get Chris Rock's name in it somewhere. And in 2001, Chris Rock was still, I mean, the hottest comedian in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feel like that's why it got made. I mean, yeah. cause Chris Rock and Louis CK are friends and Chris Rock kind of agreed to do this movie. And, yeah, so thereby they just sold it as a Chris Rock vehicle, even though it's really not. And uh, I don't know. I, I guess my lesson coming out of it is uh, anti-comedy works best in, like, 15-minute snippets. And uh, I don't know. I feel like a lot of this, like, we need to reevaluate Pootie Tang is solely because <laughs> it's a, it's got Louis C.K.'s name on it. And, look, he's made a lot of good things since then. It must be good. It's like, eh, no, it's not good. It's not good at all. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a good thing to watch, but yeah, I don't think it needs to be reevaluated. I don't think just because mm-hmm. everything Louis C.K. has done since then has been, you know, 
good to amazing means that this needs to be like considered good now. <laughs> sure, sure. There's no yeah, and if we're that. looking if we're looking forward to whatever this uh this I'm a cop movie is, the this this viewing probably had no bearing on what it's going to be in terms of like authorship. I'd assume he'll have a little more creative control this time around. <laughs> yeah, think. And it'll probably probably be more like his show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we could kind of spin that in. He just did an episode with uh, Michael Rappaport uh, a couple weeks ago that was actually about a New York cop. Anyone see it? Yeah, yep. I yeah I haven't. So wait, so can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh yeah, it's uh, actually kind of interesting. Again, it, it's rather it's got Michael Rappaport, so it once again uh, definitely deals with. Shrill actors uh, screaming at the end, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just basically kind of an examination of that blue collar lifestyle, and uh, kind of feels left behind, neglected by Louis, and as is the case with basically everything in the show, he he just kind of spends an episode shitting on Louis, and uh, Louis just kind of takes it, and then uh, helps him find a gun he lost, and uh, yeah, it's it's, it's a very... kind of it's a very typical Louis episode, um, not mm-hmm. to take too much away from it, but uh, it's pretty much like um, it's pretty much like a recreation of the really good scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, where Steve Martin tells John Candy that he can't stand him. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, actually I liked it. It's one of it's in the top half of the new season. I'd say I think it was a, a pretty touching at times and uh yeah Rappaport's a good loathsome fellow <laughs> star of right. little boy <laughs> classic <laughs> oh lord so i guess yeah final verdict on pootie tang i am glad that i watched it just because as a fan of louis ck it's it's sort of in, it's interesting to see a movie like that where you you can just barely see where his hand was in it and how he was involved in it and, and the little touches, but it fails so spectacularly uh, that it's it's almost interesting because it's so horrible at times. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. Would I ever watch it again? Probably, probably not. No. I'm gonna go with I'm not glad I watched it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to watch a black exploitation parody? Uh, black Dynamite's quite funny. Yeah, Black Dynamite's good. Would you rather Would you rather watch Undercover Brother? Uh, ladies' man or Pootie Tang? <laughs> Good God, uh, I've never Here's seen an episode either. of Shotgun Wedding brewing. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's <laughs> oh, there there we go. Shotgun Wedding. Uh, I'm gonna go blindly and say Tim Meadows occasionally makes me laugh. I'll go with the ladies' man. Fair Same. enough. Uh, I'm I'm actually I'm gonna take a different route here. Uh, I saw The Ladies' Man when it came out in theaters because it probably came out when I was, like, 16 and I didn't have anything better to do. And I hated The Ladies' Man when I was 16, which, given my taste, I'm assuming was it, that means it was pretty fucking horrible. Uh, Pootie Tang, obviously not a fan. I have not seen uh, – what I just forgot the name of the movie. What's 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 the third Undercover one? Undercover Brother. Yeah, I have not seen Undercover Brother, but it's got, like, 77% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Well, I remember. So uh, uh, I, I think it's a forgotten classic. It must be. <laughs> my memory of Undercover Brothers when I was in high school, there was a German exchange student, and 
that was her favorite American movie. And she had just seen it. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and I remember she like visited me a few years later. This is like 2005, 2006. And we had to go to a store that sold DVDs because she needed to buy a copy of Undercover Brother because she couldn't track it down in Germany. That's that's incredible. Oh, that's so yeah. incredible. <laughs> All of these movies are just like fitting in that like afternoon Comedy Central where I was like, okay, gotta change the channel. I can't sit through these. Yeah, that that's that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Uh, Steve, what do you, what do you say? Which which one are you going for? Pootie Tang? Are you going uh, Undercover Brother? What are you doing? Uh, I would always go Pootie Tang. I think uh, <laughs> just because I think maybe different to the three of you, uh, Pootie Tang actually I saw it when it came out um, not okay. in the theater, but like pretty recently after it was released on DVD. So always so when I was like 16 when I saw it, like I think that it was really like uh, <laughs> like I think it related to the juvenile in me in a way, and they're just. You know, you needed things that were a bit more exaggerated, a bit more um, rambunctious, and uh, it spoke to me then. Definitely doesn't anymore, but um, mm. yeah, I don't know. There's a, I guess I have a slight affinity for it. Um, not that I'm defending it in any way, or <laughs> I'm not even recommending it, but I certainly uh, doesn't make me uh, angry like uh, Mall Cop Two did. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I, I yeah, I think that's fair. Sean, how about you? What, what are you picking? Uh, Soul Plane. Soul Plane, good, good answer. I'm actually, I'm gonna go with The Wash. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Mac and uh, De- no, go Mac and Devin go to high school. Is that what you're gonna go with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the new classic, the new classic. Okay, well, aside from making you guys watch Pootie Tang this week, uh, I think most of us saw robot movies this week too. Um. I saw Age of Ultron. Myros, you saw Age of Ultron, which we could talk about in a little bit. But I want to hear you and Sean talk a little bit about another movie you saw, Ex Machina, which I'm not too familiar with. I know it's about a robot, and I know that uh, the Earwolf podcasts have had commercials running for it for like two weeks. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, Sean, you want to get started on this? I, I know you were concerned about spoilers. I'm thinking... Let's just say screw that and hey, yeah. uh, everybody. We're, we're gonna drop the spoiler alert here. I mean, yeah. The only reason the only reason I was concerned is I don't want to spoil it if if the Steves don't want it spoiled. Yeah. I know I what care. I signed up for. It's not the sixth sense, guys. I think you'll be all right. <laughs> right. No, that's true. The robot that's... was dead the whole time. Because <laughs> it's a robot. It's not alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or uh, is it? Yeah. I, yeah, so uh, I went into it um, not knowing a whole lot, um, just knowing that it had something to do with uh, an AI bot and that it seemed provocative, and I I also didn't know what sort of the critical consensus was either, Um, but I I enjoyed it. I I was sort of um, on the edge of my seat most of the time. Oscar Oscar Isaac is in it and he's wonderful as usual. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I I don't know. It, I don't even know where to start. Um, I guess basically for those not in the know, um, Oscar Isaac plays like the CEO of basically what Google is, and um, he has like this postmodern fortress, 
and uh, he's developing on like some island or something like that, and mm-hmm. he's developing. Um, uh, he's trying to develop sentient um, artificial intelligence, and he has one of his best developers come in what he thinks is going is just like a sweepstakes thing. But uh, basically, he has him come to do the Turing test, which is the test where you interact with a robot um, to see if they pass into sentience, I guess. Is, okay. Is, yeah. So that's, that's, and it's basically like this chess match between Oscar Isaac and um, his employee. Fair enough. Well, I mean, it's more of a chess match between Oscar Isaac and his artificial intelligence with the employees just kind of a witless pawn. Yeah. Um, it's a, I don't know. I, I think Sean had more of an affinity for it than I did. I didn't dislike it. I, I didn't know much going in either. I just, I did know the critical consensus was rather positive. I knew it was, uh, based on all these ads that have been hammering down from the podcast world. I did uh, know it was from the writer, uh, a uh, regular Danny Boyle writer's directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Um, my expectations going in were uh, basically when I went to see uh, Splice, which is uh, Vincenzo Natale uh, film about, uh, I don't know, creating some sort of a animal hybrid. And uh, that movie is quite weird. And this movie, it's it's it was an apt expectation. I gotta say, it was a really similar film in many ways, uh, including many uh, weird sexual ways. Uh, Ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't. Uh, that that was one of my like primary things with the movie. Is I, I just don't understand what they were doing with all the uh, sexuality stuff. Huh. I, uh, there's a good, on that front, there's a good review, um, from Matt Zoller sites on, uh, RogerEbert.com. Um, he talks a lot about, uh, the gender politics, which, which weren't something, which, which wasn't something that I, um, was thinking about during the movie, but it's a really good read. Um, but my main concern with it was sort of like how Alex Garland uses the movie as like this manipulation tool, um, where basically um, Oscar Isaac, um, he you, you get the sense that like he plays with this mastermind trope, where uh, like the nefarious mastermind who you don't trust the whole movie, mm-hmm. um, and it's pinned against this. Yeah, witless is a good a good word for the other guy, but more than that, he has like a high moral compass. Um, and you're constantly wondering what part of what's going on is like machinations from from Oscar Isaac and what's what's machinations from the from the robot. Um, and I don't know; it's hard to describe. Um, but basically, the the movie works as like um, a Turing test on the audience. Um, oh, okay. And, and and it's kind of like making you wonder wonder whose side you're on, um, much like the guy who's doing the Turing test. Um, I, I I don't know. I I've written most of a review that that will better explain it. But um, basically, you you're, the the movie is manipulating you to think that um, Nathan is the bad guy, but you kind of discern that he's not actually a bad guy, um, and that the robots are bad. <laughs> 
Oh. I don't know. Does, does any of this make sense to you, Myros? <laughs> I don't know because I, I mean, I tend to think it's almost the opposite. Like you're just inherently huh. programmed to think that these robots, oh, you know, Skynet, these robots, they can't get out. That'd be terrible. And then Oscar Isaac's like peeled back to be sort of this insidious weirdo who's just. Uh, again, spoilers. Oscar Isaac is fucking robots. Uh, <laughs> he appears to be designing artificial intelligence so that he doesn't have to interact with human women and can just fuck uh, smart robots. Is Oscar Isaac Christopher Nolan? Uh, it's, it's entirely possible. Uh, although Christopher then, Nolan's not not as smart as this character supposed to be. <laughs> Yeah, so that's wow. the um, that's sort of the big reveal is that he has like these concubines, um, robots, and you're supposed to think that he's a bad guy from that, or at least the movie is questioning whether you should think mm-hmm. he's a bad guy. Um, because and, he's making sex slaves out of sentient beings. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, or trying, or trying to to make them sentient. Um, mm-hmm. but you kind of already know that. You don't exactly know that he's having sex with them, but you know that he has a whole bunch that, like, because he explains that he makes a robot, uh, and you know strives for sentience, and then that that model obviously becomes obsolete for a better one. So you know that he has these past models. You just don't have the visual for it. You you just don't know that they're all in his closet. Just like you know, hanging there, which you know, it doesn't really make a difference, I guess. It's well, just weird. It is. He just has this weird, True. like, this weird, like, uh, prepubescent, like, body type, women Im- image thing going on. But um, I, I don't know. I was like, yeah, that's kind of creepy. But at the same time, like, I guess they're not real women that he has, like, as his slaves. Um, eh, I don't know. Better than fucking a toaster. <laughs> Uh, that's why I live my life by. But why is he programming him to think and feel? It's just so weird. Well, isn't isn't it part of like just the evolution of technology that that he's he's the evolution of sex technology? I I don't know the the whole sex bot thing. Really, uh, I can't get behind the character once you go into sex bot land. Uh <laughs> I will say Oscar Isaac is the only reason this film works for me. Like, uh, I think the script is pretty taut, but it's not, it doesn't surprise at any turn. Like, if you go into this movie knowing, like, a base plot about guy developing AI on an island, you're basically like, oh, yeah, she'll probably, the, the AI is gonna, like, try and outsmart him and escape. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, it, it's pretty paint by numbers in that. I mean, it is. It does have. I don't want to undersell it. It's it's a fairly nuanced film, in its way. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all comes down to Oscar Isaac. It's and he does so many weird things in the movie. Uh, I don't know whether the script called for him to be a tremendous drunk, but he's just like drunk ninety percent of the movie. <laughs> uh, and also, there's this just. <clears throat> Bizarre scene in the in the middle of the movie where he has like this choreographed disco dance <laughs> with one of the with who at the time you don't know is a robot but it, you just think it's like his maid or something uh, and yeah it the movie just stops and they have this weird like disco dance uh, for like three minutes and it's pretty <laughs> wonderful it's definitely the most surreal and awesome portion of the movie <laughs> I I think uh, to quickly like. Uh, relay like my feelings for it. Um, 
I, I think it works on a highly metatextual level. Um, and for me, it, it was almost more about uh, movie, like, or like movie storytelling devices than it was like uh, actually making um, a statement about robots. Mm-hmm. So once I finish this review, that 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 details that um, in much hopefully much more succinct way. So if you're making a movie deconstructing like movie storytelling devices and you call it Ex Machina, why is there no Deus Ex Machina? The whole time I was like, I was like, what is a piano gonna like fall on us? <laughs> that would be the ultimate end. A I piano was, falls on his dick, and then the Warner Brothers logo shows up. I, I was just expecting the the Deus Ex back into the whole movie. I'm like, God damn it, it's not there. Oh, no references to the 2000 Smashing Pumpkins album. <laughs> that's the that's the soundtrack. We didn't mention that. Oh God. Ah. Uh, well, there was another movie that just came out that made about $500 million or so, $600, $700 million, a billion dollars. It made a lot of money. Uh, Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, which I saw the night it came out, and I think Myro saw it. And uh, boy, was I underwhelmed. And underwhelmed might be underselling my disdain for Age of Ultron. Did you not see the predecessor? I saw I saw the first one and I liked the first one. I thought I thought I think the uh, the first Avengers movie is it's good for what it is. It's great. Like you have all these characters coming together from the previous movies. Uh, all their characters are already developed from those previous movies. So you know it, you you just get right into the action. It works. It's a good popcorn movie. Uh, the new one is amazing because I think it fails in every single way that the first Avengers movie succeeded. So. If you just watched the Avengers and you weren't familiar with any of the previous Marvel movies, the first Avengers movie, you can have a good time. It, they're superheroes. They're pretty simple characters. It's an easy story to follow. It's a fun popcorn movie with some good action sequences. Now, if you saw all of the the Marvel movies that led up to it, the you know the Iron Man's, the Thor's, uh, you know, Captain the Hulk, Captain America, all that stuff, then you got a little bit extra. So you were kind of rewarded. You got you got thrown a couple bones, and so. There's a little bit extra there for you, but it wasn't necessary. When you watch Age of Ultron, and and this is coming from someone who has seen all the Marvel movies, if you don't have an intimate knowledge of all of those movies, you have no fucking clue what's going on. And even if you do have an intimate knowledge of those movies, you're still not going to have any idea what's going on or why the characters are doing what they're doing. There's a point in the movie where Hawkeye actually sort of like he's addressing this other character, but he's basically addressing the audience. And he just talks about the absurdity of this of the scene there. And he's just like, yeah, you know, we're just in this far-off place. We're fighting robots, and this and this is happening. Isn't that weird? He's basically admitting that the, the movie's an entire, like, a hodgepodge. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's just a series of loosely connected action sequences that with a story that's almost impossible to follow, and there's so no stakes at all. Yeah, it's it's the pooty tang of superhero movies. That's that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'd go so far as that. <laughs> what did you think of it, Myros? Uh, I just I don't have a ton to add on it. I mean, I didn't disdain it in the sense that you did. I just it was really the sort of movie that rolls right off you, like you you forget it about five minutes after you leave the theater. Mm-hmm. It's uh. 
Yeah, and that, a lot of the Marvel movies fall nicely into that category, but this was not among the stronger efforts from the uh, studio. You could really, it was like, again, it was just so much going on for this. It's like, we need to pare back this plot a lot. Like, mm-hmm. they, there's so many side plots and everyone has to have their own little thing going on. Uh, some of them work and are among the stronger things in the movie. Uh, like, I mean, Hawkeye's little fleshed outside plot was probably one of the few character beats that really worked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I'd say, I, I actually, as much as the internet kind of hates it, I thought that the Hulk, uh, Black Widow stuff was pretty effective too. And, um, but again, did they need to be in the movie? Uh, should they have been in the movie if this was your central plot? Uh, it was almost like the Ultron plot felt like it should have just been an Iron Man movie, and then all this other stuff was just kind of like slammed in there. Sure, sure. Now, Maros, what was the plot of Age of Ultron? Because I'm a little bit confused about it. So there's there's this artificial intelligence, and it's inside of a space knife, and it gets out, and it goes on the Internet, and then it decides it's going to destroy the world by picking up a city and dropping it? Is that is that correct? That that's about right. I, I again one of the things that felt really cheap to me about this movie and and not in a sense that it looked cheap or was cheap, because Lord knows they probably spent about a billion dollars on it. But uh mm-hmm. I'm just saying narratively cheap was why did this artificial intelligence just sort of exists. Like, isn't the whole point of, like, making Tony Stark this, like, we got to protect humanity and I'm going to go too far into a totalitarian mindset. Uh, wh- mm-hmm. wh- why isn't it something he develops? He just, like, finds it in a sword and then it just sort of happens. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't, the origin of Ultron doesn't make any sense at all. It's just something they sort of drop in there. And then the other thing is everyone seems very afraid of Ultron, uh, but I don't understand why I should be afraid of him. The first time they encounter him, they destroy him, basically. Uh, the advantages that he has, so he has, he has two advantages in the movie. The first is Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, uh, who about halfway through the movie switch sides and become good guys. So that advantage is gone. The second is he's trying to make this, like, indestructible body or whatever. And indestructible body guy ends up going to the Avengers side. So Ultron doesn't have shit. He has a bunch of robots <laughs> that fall apart. He has no advantages. He's I, I, don't, I don't understand why everyone in this movie is terrified of him. It doesn't make any sense. And then also halfway through the movie, so the only point where the action stops for two seconds to breathe so they can tell a story and this is all just you know to tell Hawkeye's pretty decent narrative beats um, it's when they go to the farm why the fuck do they go to the farm I don't understand why they go to the farm uh, I don't know <laughs> they just go to a farm and it, but it's it's like it's this really funny trope in movies that somehow I managed to see twice in one week. But yeah, it's like, oh, i got to find myself. Time to go to a, a farm in the middle of nowhere. That's what, where it's at. What really makes no sense in narratively, again, we, well, A, let me address my other point real quick. The, the reason that the, they find Ultron in a rock in a sword 
is uh, <laughs> which totally narratively undercuts this Tony Stark arc that we're supposed to be caring about, uh, is because they have to shoehorn it into the Infinity Gauntlet storyline, which is going to come down the pike about ten years later. Uh, oh, which, boy. Yeah, which they teased in the first Avengers, uh, leading you to believe it might be the second Avengers, but I don't even know if it's going to be the third Avengers, and good God, what a fucking mess. Uh, but yeah, they go to a farm, and it makes no sense, because this movie should be... Like, once Ultron gets loose, there's a ticking clock, right? Uh, we got to mm-hmm. contain him. He's spreading by the minute. Time to take a little time off on the farm. No. <laughs> <laughs> what you do, man? Go uh, thresh some wheat. Now, I, I have a couple more questions about this movie. The first one is, and you're right, this does kind of feel like an Iron Man movie that other characters were sort of shoehorned into. Uh, but well, we're talking about Iron Man as a character because they didn't know what was going on with Robert Downey Jr. So it seemed like at the end of Iron Man 3 and then um, Winter Soldier, I guess, it made it seem like Tony Stark was done. Like he was, I mean, he blows up all of his suits at the end of Iron Man three. Like he's he's fucking out of it. And none of that is really addressed at all in this movie. He's just kind of back into it. And then we're just supposed to go, oh okay. <laughs> Which yeah. is it, kind of shitty and disingenuous for for a movie that expects you to be intimately familiar with Marvel Agents of Shield in order to catch everything that's going on. <laughs> that's pretty fucking shitty. Uh. uh yeah, I'd agree with that. There's a lot of stuff like, again, for how many properties this uh, they have going at this point. There's a lot of stuff that happens off screen before Avengers: Age of Ultron. Like again, the Black Widow Hulk stuff just kind of dropped in there, mm-hmm. and it's fine. That that doesn't inherently bother me. It's just uh, the Tony Stark thing is kind of strange because it is a real 180, and I I know Robert Downey Jr. is probably not going to do any further, like, Iron Man movies, and he's just going to like, kind of pop in for these. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, and he's, I guess, still got that, like, weary trying to get out of this business uh, sort of thing going on, but, yeah, it's... Yeah, they don't really address it. No. Now, the, the last thing I want to say about this, and, Myros, you read a lot of comic books growing up, so I think, you know, you could probably speak to this and tell me if I'm completely off base, but I think part of the reason why the Marvel movies have been so successful is because they've been able to exist as something that's really accessible. Uh, Comic books, they always have all the continuity and the backstories and just decades and decades and decades of bullshit that that just builds up that you have to address. And that's why comic books can be so hard to get into because you you drop right in and you don't necessarily know what's going on. But the Marvel movies work because anybody can go to a Marvel movie. It doesn't matter if you don't give a shit about Thor. You can just kind of have fun with it. now, with Age of Ultron, I feel like comic book movies have finally reached the level where comic books are at, where they're so up their own ass that it's impossible to see what's going on. Is that is that a fair assessment? It felt that way, yeah. This is really the first one of these movies that really was just like in its own universe so heavily that it was kind of hard to independently watch and have fun with. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the Marvel movies to begin with, but uh, mm-hmm. it, at least they are exactly what they are, just light popcorn fluff. Yeah, and, and this, Yeah, this was not, like, trying to be important, I guess, but it was just really 
invested in its own story, which it shouldn't be because its story kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree a hundred percent. Well, I think I think that yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Now, one more thing we want to talk about today. Uh, maybe something good Marvel's done recently, and that's Daredevil. Now, I, I haven't finished the complete series yet, and if you need to spoil something for me, that's that's fine. You guys can. I don't care. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm like five episodes in, and I'm I'm really digging it. Yeah, I'm exactly five episodes in too, and uh, I dig it. I, I dig it as well. Does it get better or worse? Uh, I think it, it keeps its momentum. I've seen the whole series now. Um, yeah, it, it's it took me a little bit. I like the first episode. I yeah. Kind of hated. I was like, boy, this is this is awfully self-serious, and there was like no music throughout the whole thing. It just felt so dry. And yeah, the first like one and a half episodes was real, real bad. Right. I almost like I was actually watching it when I was back home in Lansing. I was like, oh, let's pop this on, and I I almost stopped. Well, I was like, okay, this is not worth watching. And only the reviews got me like back into it, and I'm glad I did because I think again. It's it's kind of like a performance that makes the show, which in, in this case is one Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, D'Onofrio is so good. Yeah, Vincent the, D'Onofrio on that date. Oh, I'm so jealous of that woman. Right, that that <laughs> that Kingpin character is wonderfully fleshed out throughout this series. It's it's uh yeah, really great yeah. villain. That, that's good to hear. Uh, I mean, even so, he comes at the end of the third episode and he makes this very like. Uh, third man Orson Welles type like star appearance, um, where he's talked about for a while, but you don't get to see him. And uh, which, funny enough, he did play Orson Welles in Ed Wood. Um, <laughs> but then like, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of like, um, you know that he's this dangerous guy, um, but he is, he's, uh, introduced as this very sort of, uh, brittle, emotional guy. Mm hmm. And and it's nice to have a guy who um and, and even so so I guess Daredevil's opposition is basically him but also a corporation right um, sure sure so and, and it's nice to have that like grounded in social and economic economic problems of our reality instead of merely like someone who does evil things for fun like the Joker yeah no it, it does it does feel much more grounded in reality and I think. Part of the reason why I've enjoyed the uh, the Daredevil series is because it's the exact polar opposite of the Avengers in terms of tone and execution and uh, everything they go for. Even the violence, I love the just the brutality of it and almost the you know the the realism of it. You know, like the, all the punches have impact. It doesn't feel silly right. and comical at any point. Uh, and it's it's also it's a clear homage to things like you know like Old Boy. There's that one fight scene that's just basically oh, the sure. old boy uh, hallway scene. And it's great. It's, it's, it's really nice to watch something coming from Marvel that it's not necessarily edgy. It just feels more grounded, and then that translates to some crazy, you know, very visceral realism. Uh, like when Vincent D'Onofrio smashes a guy's head in the car oh door. That was, that was tough to watch. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, like, the fact, the fact that Daredevil or Matt, whatever, uh, doesn't have, like, real superhero powers like that brings real tension to like every fight that he does and Mm -hmm. and it's nice to see sort of like his tactics develop into like more stealthy 
things and and even like the the location hell's kitchen or their interpretation of hell's kitchen is is mm-hmm. has a nice atmosphere to it yeah yeah no i i agree completely and yeah the the fact that he's not a superhero he's just a blind guy with you know that has a few powers but he's not like like physically he's not like superman or something like that uh, and, and they really emphasize that because in other movies with superheroes who don't necessarily have, you know, invulnerability powers or something, there's a tendency to kind of downplay that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Avengers is a, is a great example where someone like Hawkeye should be getting, you know, beamed in the head with a bullet or something, but that never happens. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's refreshing. It's nice. It's a good complement to the, the lighter Marvel stuff, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's like spectacular, like A grade television or anything, but it's just so refreshing to see something that has an amount of craft to it in the Marvel universe. Like every single thing they put out looks the same, mm-hmm. and and it looks like plastic, cheap junk. Even the even the really expensive movies, it's just they they all have this like gross look to them but to me like it and this is totally separate from that it's it started out looking like it was going to be a lame like batman begins type thing and it, it really kind of found its footing beyond that and yeah it's actually like a fully realized like you can see someone's vision in this show which is beyond anything i could certainly say about like agents of shield or something like that oh good lord i also Did like I, oh. I also like the, the courtroom drama hybrid to it um maybe that's just my proclivity, but um, uh, I am a bit worried about some of the relationships with the women. Um, some some of them, I mean, so far have worked really well, but like like the relationship between him, the main character, and Rosario Dawson seems very forced. Like there was no real sexual tension, and then they kiss, and she's like, "Oh, I was wondering when you were gonna do that." It's like you guys, like it's just Florence Nightingale stuff going on it's like there, there <laughs> to me it didn't seem like there was any real tension they were just like friends helping each other um right mm-hmm. but but the the woman who um kingpin is uh starting a relationship with um that's that's really cool like you can feel like uh, you can feel like sort of the reverberations of his actions like through her like really worried about like what this means and and sort of her tacit um agreement in dating him and i don't know mm-hmm. it's it looks like from from episode five it looks like it it has really interesting things to explore yeah uh yeah. do you have anything else to add Maros? uh not really i i mean i again i i do kind of like the relationships well, the only character i find to have a problem with is is Froggy Nelson. Oh my gosh, Elder Nelson. Froggy Nelson. Yeah, Uh, that dude cannot act. No. Plus, does he have like? Does he have like another name? Say that again. What was his name in Mighty Ducks? Like Ralpho or something like that? I don't know. Oh God, yeah. What was he? Was in Mighty Ducks? Jesus. I I don't even know. I was just like, ah, oh, look, it's some pig-faced gentleman, and <laughs> <laughs> he does he does have a pig face. That's that's. <laughs> so how do we how do we rate it in the Marvel canon? I had somebody tell me before I watched it that they thought it was the best thing in the Marvel canon in terms of TV and film. Um, how, where do you guys put it? 
Uh, I, I'd put it, I'd say it's top tier right now. I mean, obviously I still have to finish Daredevil, but, uh, I, I'd say it's, it's up there with, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the original Avengers. It's, it's good and it's good in a completely different way. So. Yeah, I, I might, it is, it's definitely top tier. I don't know that it's better than, I mean, it's a totally different beast. It's kind of hard to compare to a lot of the MCU stuff. And, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not that fond of any of the, the newer films. I, I guess as far as like Marvel properties, I like a lot of what other studios have done better than what Marvel's done. Uh, as sacrilegious as that sounds, but I, I give me a Raimi Spider-Man or, oh, a, yeah, yeah. or a Ben Affleck Daredevil. <laughs> or an, I, I, I preferred X-Men Days of Future Past to most of all the Marvel. Oh movies. yeah. Still yeah, Days of Future Past was good. But Myros, what about Elektra? Uh, I can't say as I've ever seen Daredevil or Electra. So. That's right. No one's seen Electra. That's fine. That's fine. Right. Uh, yeah, this, this doesn't have Colin Farrell in it. That's the real drawback. Yeah. Needs more Colin Farrell. Well, the show is season two. Keep your fingers crossed. All right, guys. Is, is there a is there a crossover uh, True Detective and uh, Daredevil? It could be. As long as it's got D'Onofrio, I'll tune in. <laughs> Myros, what are you putting over this week? Uh, again, I'm I'm kind of uh in a an angry funk this week. What I'm going to do is something non-traditional. I'm putting over the content creator because it's been a rough week for the content creator with uh Nathan Rabin and uh, more prominently Bill Simmons both being ousted from their own babies. Uh, yeah, and that's just depressing. So f you uh corporations and uh yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say, uh, pour one out for Bill Simmons and uh, for Nathan Rabin. Yeah, it was probably all it was probably all Union Allied that did it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Coleman, have you submitted your resume for the editor in chief position at Grantland yet? Oh yeah, I'm working on it, but uh, I don't know. I've also used the terms testicular fortitude in a publication. Ah. Of, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, think, I think I think that's a good start. That's a good start. Well, as long as you didn't, uh, you know, uh, bash the commissioner of the NFL, and I think you're probably good. Nah, yeah. I've done that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's always the dissolve. Yeah. Steve, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm actually putting over a show this week, uh, since this will probably be airing in time for people in the old Milwaukee area to hear about this. Uh, Thursday evening, May 14th, uh, my friends from Minneapolis, the Holler House, are going to be doing a show at the Bremen Cafe in the River West neighborhood. Uh, nice. So it's them, along with uh, another Minneapolis band, Bitter Cannon. Um, so if you're a fan of uh, noisy post-punk or raw garage punk, uh, it should be a really good show. I'm really excited about it. And also uh, Milwaukee bands Rosencrantz and uh, Monotar. Uh, Monotar is like a math noise solo guy. I'm really excited to see oh. him. Uh, yeah, it's a free show. Um, come out and yeah, buy a lot of drinks so they can hang out with Optimism like, Vaccine. Me and Steve yeah. will be there drunk. Exactly. Two drunk Steve's <laughs> right. for the price of free. What else could you want? <laughs> Steve, do they uh, do they have a uh, like a Bandcamp page or a website or something if people want to check out their music? Yeah, you'll you can go to hollerhouse.bandcamp.com slash releases. Perfect, perfect. Sean, what are you putting over this week? 
Um, it's something I saw uh, before we did the last podcast, but um, an episode of the Red Green Show. Sorry, no. Uh, Paul Blart too. No. Um, uh, while we're young, I don't know if I mentioned it, but uh, I, that's the most recent Noah Baumbach movie. Um, follow up to Francis Ha, and uh, it's it's really good. I mean, I mean, it's pretty pretty standard. Like if you like Noah Baumbach, you'll like this type mm-hmm. of stuff. But um, I happen to be one of those people who do, and um, it's uh, he just deals with things in, in complex ways. He he has a weird way of like making movies that are life affirming, but at the same time like kind of depressing at the same or. Yeah, depressing at the same time that it's life affirming, and um, I, I don't know. I I fully recommend uh, while we're young. Um, it's kind of follows in the footsteps of Greenberg. It's good stuff. Cool. Looking forward to checking it out. All right, this week I'm putting over a game. Uh, it's available on Steam. It's like five bucks. It's called Selfie Sisters of the Amniotic Lens. Um, it's I guess you could call it an art game. Of sorts, it's very strange. So, uh, after you play through this brief like introductory sequence, uh, where you're strapped to a wheelchair without legs and arms, and you have to electrocute flies while a song by Gerbo plays, uh, you kind of move on to this weird vector graphic space area, and you go around shooting these bottles, and people can kind of like send messages back and forth to each other, and then you get points for shooting the bottles. So it's kind of this weird hybrid of uh, an experimental video game and, like, a social media platform. It's very strange. So, yeah, check that out. It's on Steam. And that's about it. So, Steve Coleman, as always, the last word is yours. We like explosions.